pray with me as I pray? Father, I just thank you, Lord. Um, I thank you that together we can stand here and say, we do believe, Lord, help our unbelief, and we find you ever ready to help us. Lord, so I do pray right now in the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name that makes demons flee, the name by which every knee will bow and someday every tongue will confess as Lord. Lord, I pray in that beautiful, majestic name that what we do not already know about you, you would teach us. That what we cannot yet see, you would show us. That what we are not yet, your spirit would make us. That the spirit of God would take the word of God and apply it to the hearts of the people of God to transform us into the image of the Son of God. That is why we are here this morning. For the fame and the glory of your name, we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and, began to, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Thank you, David. I love your heart. So today, what we are talking about, the, today's message is called, Show Them the Father. And we're going to look at probably what is, not probably, it actually is, the best known of all of the parables that Jesus taught. Like, like you don't have to have been a Christian. You don't have to have um, grown up in the church, neither of which were my story, my backstory as a young man. Um, but many people in the world have heard of the prodigal son. And that's what we're going to look at today, but probably in a little different perspective than you're used to. I want to start, though, by acknowledging something. When I say something like, show them the Father, for some of us in this room, that doesn't bring um, a positive aspect, a positive feeling. 
Like some of us didn't have fathers, had fathers that abandoned us, had fathers that were distant, emotionally distant from you, had fathers that didn't say things like, I love you, I'm proud of you. Maybe you had fathers that were abusive to you. Like, I get it. I get that the picture of father isn't always a pleasant one for many people. But what you're going to see today is that our heavenly father is one that knows and loves all of his children. And, and we want to not only see what like, that father looks like for us, but we want to show that father, that father, to a world that doesn't... Guys, get this. As I was doing some research for this, did you know that 45% of the kids born in this country this year will be born to homes that do not have a father? 45% of the children born in this country this year will be born to homes that do not have a father. Guys, that is, sociologists will tell you, not Christians, that is socially un, like, you cannot um, maintain that. Our society, if that doesn't get fixed, our society is doomed. It's just what has happened throughout history. Now, there's great opportunity, especially with what has happened with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the pro-life movement for us to, like no other time, for us as, a ch- as the church, capital C Church, to step into that void, right? Now, I also want to acknowledge, though, guys, that, that the church has done, don't, I don't want you to believe the lies that the enemy is spewing about how Christians have only ever cared about ending abortion. That is not true. Right, guys, in the foster care system, in the adoption system, Christian families blow away every other statistic of families out there that are engaged in those worlds. Right here in our, in our, right in our, in Glendale, right down the street from us, we have, and, and there are multiple sites like this throughout Arizona and throughout the nation that are um, clinics that young ladies can go to. The one I'm thinking of is called Choices Pregnancy Center. You may have heard of it. Some of you have even volunteered there in the past. And they give women options other than abortion. But that's, that's only a fraction of what they do. They provide diapers. They provide a formula. They provide wipes. They provide parent classes. They provide birthing classes. They provide help afterwards. They provide clothes for the kids. Because all of that is done as a Christian organization. So do not believe this lie that somehow, oh, well, you know, yeah, we need to, we need to hide in shame somehow because, because the church is, maybe we won the abortion debate, but we hate women. That's just a lie. I mean, that is such a lie. So don't believe that. Now, at the same time, what we do need to get to is not just meeting physical needs of unwed moms or of children that don't have fathers, but we need to get to the gospel. We need to get to showing them their heavenly father. Look at your first talking points question. It's on the back of the handout that was in your bulletin. So your first talking point said, we're, we're an interactive church, even on 4th of July weekend. So I want to um, ask you this question. So I think it was Tozer who said this, but I wasn't sure but it has been said by someone smarter than me, what comes to mind when you think about God may be the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God may be the most important thing about you. 
Guys, we want to ask that question corporately. We want to ask that question of one another. But we also want to get good at asking that question of the world. Guys, the days, like as we're trying to talk about like entering into gospel conversations, the days of looking at somebody and going, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Those days are over, honestly. Because we live in a post-Christian culture. Most of our culture, they don't even, they don't, like we think that everybody in America has heard the gospel and has rejected Jesus, right? So we come, that is just not, that's not even close to true anymore. It used to be. Years ago, you could lead with, hey, I know you've heard about Jesus. Have you accepted him as your personal savior? That is not a, that is not a thing people even understand anymore. You got to back up a step and, and at the very least just go, hey, what, if, when, you, when I say God, what comes to mind? Like, do, do you, there isn't one, there is one, this is what he is, but, but, so we want, but, but for us to engage the culture that way, we need to have done a little bit of work in here, like in here and in here. So I'm going to ask you right now, what comes to mind when you think about God? Grace, love, creator, kindness, forgiveness. Father. Now the question we want to, like, like, think about, if you ask that question of the guy on the video, his answers are going to be very different, aren't they? Right? And so, so that's where we need to be able to engage in those conversations. But the more we can embrace some of the answers you just heard, the easier it is for us to engage in those conversations. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. Everybody just close your eyes. What comes to mind, so, so bring it from this corporate level to a personal level, what comes to mind when you think about God? What are you picturing? Who are you picturing? What are you feeling? That's the question I'm asking today. So if you turn your paper over, the, the, the training thought is for us, what comes to mind when you think about God? But not just us, the whole world, right? We are here today to show them, like we are left here on this planet as believers, to show them that there is a God in heaven who has made them in his image, who knows them fully and loves them deeply, like that's what we're, that's what we gather here to remind ourselves of that and also to be trained in how to go out and share the, that message with the world. That there is a God in heaven who has made them, everyone, every human being that's ever lived in his image, knows everything about us and chooses to love us deeply anyway. So let's take a look at our first, we're going to look at that through a parable that Jesus taught. We're in Luke chapter 15, so turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third Gospel, it's in your New Testament. And we're going to look at this well-known parable of the prodigal son. Like I said, it's probably his best-known parable. It's in the middle of a big chunk of teaching that Jesus is making about the kingdom. He talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and he's getting to sort of the, the, this idea of the lost son. But what he's trying to connect us with here is he's trying to connect us, the, the, is what is God's heart towards lost things that are found, right? And that's what we're going to see in this parable. And what he's going to show us are, these, are three things. He's going to show us that what, like, like, there are three things that we tend to think about when we think about God. Where we've rejected his will how we've been restored in his love, or 
Third one is why we need to rejoice in his grace. And Jesus is going to tell a great story. He was a ma- obviously the master teacher. And so we're just going to pick it up in, um, chap- in verse 11 of chapter 15. And I'm going to try and go fairly fast through the details because you guys, many of you have heard this story. All of you should have read it already this morning. You just had it read over you by David. So let's pick it up in verse 11. And our first point. Where ha- so ask yourself this question as you're reading this. Where About this first son. Where have you rejected the Father's will? And, and he, so, so, so Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Now understand this. Guys, one, if you haven't figured it out yet, the, he, the father is a picture of God. He has two sons. His, son, well, his younger son says, I want what's coming to me. It's his way of saying, it would be better for me if you were dead. In that culture, what he's, because, because what he's saying is, if you were dead, I would have already received my inheritance. So, so what the father is hearing is, you would rather I be dead. What he does is he divides up the, the estate between the two sons. Now, in that early, that would not have happened until the father passed away. But what, what, in that culture, what happened is the younger boy got a third, since there were only two of them. The older boy got two-thirds. The father now technically owns nothing. He's given all of it to his sons. This is going to become important at the end of the message. One-third to the, to the first son, two-thirds to the second. Now let's, let's keep going. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all of his um, all, all that he had, so his whole third of the estate, took it on a long journey to a faraway country, and there he squandered it. Um, he squandered all of his property in reckless living. So this, so let's let's move this into like modern day. Like what's what is Jesus saying here? This is like a young man whose whose father is incredibly wealthy and incredibly loving and giving, and he says, "Here, take a third of all. Take, take a third of my estate with you." He moves to the big city and he starts going out at night. He starts hanging out with people that he shouldn't be hanging out with. He starts buying everybody rounds at the bar. He's doing all this stuff. He blows all of his money on that loose living is how the ESV translates it. Now look at what he says. Look at what it says in, in, um, in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So and again, modern day, so, here's, so he's out living large because he's got a lot of money and things are going really well. And then a recession hits. Gas goes to five something a gallon. Food gets increased by 30, you know, uh, like double in price. He doesn't have, his money is going faster and faster and faster. Pretty soon he has none of it. It's all gone. That is not that uncommon a story, sadly, and even in our world today. Now look at verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Guys, this is Jesus' way of saying, so he went to work for a bunch of sinners, because they were, they were not Jews. They were from some other, whatever country he went to. And he's doing the worst thing a Jew could do. They weren't allowed to eat pigs. I mean, this is a country, or this is a group of people that didn't understand the beauty of bacon. Right? Like, seriously. I mean, Jesus died so we could have bacon, guys. And so we need to, we need to enjoy that. But here, so Jesus isn't just picking an animal. He's, saying, he's trying to make a point. This, this young man has become completely broken. Like he is at the lowest of lows. He has hit rock bottom. He is, to Brian's story, in the insane asylum, right, with nothing. 
And then look at what it says. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of that the pigs were, were eating. That's how hungry he was. And no one gave him anything. Guys, the, the, the point of this first part of the parable Jesus is trying to make is there's this father in heaven who loved his boys. Right? There's, there's, or there's this father that loved his boys. And he gives them all that he has. And one of, the, one of the sons rejects him. So God is the, or the father is the picture of God. This first son is the, picture of, is the picture of the rebellious world. The world that is basically thumbing their nose at or doing other expletive gestures to God. That's who I was for the first half of my 50-something years. A God-mocking atheist, shaking my fist, a complete rebel. Right? And that's... What in Jesus' Jesus' teaching, and he's saying, guys, understand, rejecting God's will for your life is a big deal. It never ends well. Now, you you might say, you might be saying, right, yeah, but Doug, I'm sitting here in church on the 3rd of July in Phoenix, Arizona. Why are you preaching to me about doing God's will? Well, guys, understand that, that we are guilty of this too. Like, we can be guilty of rejecting God's will, even as believers, right? Like, like, you don't believe me? Look at just some of the things that Jesus commands. He didn't suggest. Jesus commands. Love your enemies. How are we doing with that? Pray for those who persecute you, he says, right? Don't judge. How about that one? How are we doing with that one? Don't judge other people. How about this one? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. How about this one? These are, guys, these are not suggestions by Jesus. In the Greek, they're in the imperative. That means it's a command. Do it. Don't doubt it. How about this one? Don't worry. Sorry. Why is my phone, my phone, why is my phone talking to me? My, my, don't worry. This last one is what we're talking about in this series. Make disciples. Make disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if I were to take a poll right now and say, so how many of you are currently in a discipleship relationship? Like, like where you are actively engaged in the things of God with other people. At different levels of maturity, whatever that is. How many? Because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I'm going to tell you it's not nearly enough of you. This is not a suggestion. right? This is outside of God's will. Look at your second talking points question. How have we rejected God's will? Or how has the world rejected God's will? Well, I think that's pretty obvious. It always starts with rejecting God's word, right? Start, that's the way it started in the garden, right from the beginning. It's always been the same problem. God's always told us, here's what I want for you. Here's my best for you. Here's how you flourish as my children. And we've always, we start by rejecting as well. Those weren't really commands by Christ. Those are just suggestions. I'm, I can justify my worry. I can justify my judgment. I can justify not being on mission for him. I can justify, I can justify, I can justify because grace covers all that. And it does. But if you're sitting here today and you're not feeling convicted by that, I would question whether that grace is even applied. How have you rejected his will? Now here's the second part, and this is an important part of the, of the question. How has your past, how, is, how could your past rebellion keep you from coming to God? How could your past rebellion keep you from coming to God? Because shame is powerful. 
And most of what we see happening in the unbelieving world today that is just that is crazy about gender identity and, and the redefinition of marriage and all these other things is people trying to cover their own shame. In, they, they would not say that, of course. They don't know that. They're, remember, we talked about this last week. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. Their foolish minds have been darkened to keep them from seeing the glory that is Christ, is what Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians. So guys, we need, to, we, we need to understand that our past sins can keep us from embracing the Father. Guys, we're not, a, we're not immune to shame. What was prayed? I, I, I heard um, Debbie pick up on the lyrics of the song, and our shame is undone. Why would those lyrics be written? Why would we pray that? Because shame keeps us from coming to the Father in all of his grace. Like, yeah, I, I just am not worthy. You know, thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. But I'm not worthy of your best for me. That sells grace short, and it sells our heavenly Father short. So that leads us to our second talking points question, because that's where we're going to, that's where the story Jesus is telling is going to go next. So one, so what comes to mind when you think about God? Where you've maybe rejected his will. The second is, or do you think to yourself, here's how I have been restored in his love. Here's how I've been restored. And this is the, the most beautiful part of the story to me. So look at verse 17. So we, we, left the, we left the first son in the pig trough wanting to eat pieces of chewed on corn, I guess. And then it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have, even, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Guys, that's repentance. He, is, he says, he's come to his senses. God has convicted him. And he says, I have, and he admits, I have sinned against you and against heaven. That's what he said. I've, I've sinned against you, Father. And then, and then look what he says. I will arise and go to my father. Right? That's the other part of repentance. Repentance isn't just admitting that your sin, your sin and turning from it. Repentance is moving back towards the Father. Now let's keep going and then we'll come back to that idea. So he arose and then he finishes his thought. He says, I am no, this is still him talking to himself. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here's where he's gotten. I am so ashamed. I, I see that I remember my dad being abundantly gracious, and, and so I, I, I'm going to go there, but I'm, I'm just going to hope that, at the, that he'll just treat me as a servant. I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. Do you see how that relates to the, talk, to the talking points question I just asked? How does your past sin keep you from the full, like fully embracing grace? Because too many of us come to the cross that way. Too many of us come like in our time of response, even on Sundays that way. I, you know what? I thank you for my salvation. I thank you for the victory I have in Christ. But I, I, I know all, I'm just, I am a bottom feeder in the body of Christ. There, there is no spiritual gift of bottom feeding. Right? There's no, there's no, there's no place in that. You guys, if you, are, if you are his, if you are born again, you are a son or daughter of the king. You have been invited to the banquet, like of all banquets. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at what he says. Look at what the father says. Verse, verse 20. And he arose and, he, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. So what does that tell you about the heart of the father? We don't know how long, how much time has passed. It's just a story. It's a parable. But he's on the lookout for his lost son. He never gave up. Right? There's no place you could have wandered from God where God's going to go, you know what, I've just given up on that one. He is always on the lookout for that moment you're going to turn and repent and come back to him. And he says, while he's a long way off, he feels compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Guys, understand, like in, that, in this culture, like the culture Jesus is teaching to, the, everybody would have been like, oh. Jewish men did not run. Ever. Like, they just didn't. And they certainly didn't run towards a rebellious son. Guys, in their culture, what they would have done is they would have waited for the son to come and grovel to them. Because otherwise, they lose face. That's not this father's heart. God is not up there going, I want you to come to me, and I want to see if you're really serious by just how much you genuflect or whatever that you like to, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Look at what the father does. So the son starts in on his prepared speech. He says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now remember, what he wants to say next is, so just make me one of your servants. The father won't even let him get it out of his mouth. Guys, I, I want you to just get this picture. I don't think you're getting it. I get it. I get it. It's, 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 I get it's 100 and something degrees and it's the 3rd of July. But guys, get this picture. This son who thinks he is completely unworthy of anything but servanthood, of being the, the, just the bottom dweller in, in, in that community, not even a part of the family anymore, he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I'm sorry. And then he wants to say, just, I, I know I can't be your son anymore. I just want to be a servant for you. And his dad says, shh, son. There's no place for that here. It's okay. You don't need to prove anything to me. He doesn't say, you know what, that's not a bad idea, boy. Why don't you be a slave for a year, just a year maybe, and we'll see if you're serious. Or if you slip back into that sin again. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, shh, hush. Don't you know how much I love you? Don't you know how much I have longed for the day that you would come to me? That you would come home? Hush. Guys, fathers in the room, fathers right now, love your children well. Hug your boys, even when they're men. Tell your children, hug your girls too, but I assume that's more, it's easier for us dudes. Tell your kids you love them and you're proud of them. Guys, let, let, let them, no matter what happens, let them never have a doubt that you loved them more than any other human being on this planet and far less than their father does and heaven does. Guys, if you have to, you have to die trying to do that 
That's our job. I loved how Brian started our time today. He didn't know what it, th- th- this was where I was going. Men, stand up and lead. Yes, you have to be strong sometimes. Yes, you have to be tough sometimes. But you have to be loving. Because here's the thing, guys. And this isn't just for the men. This is for all of us. How we see ourselves, our shame, our guilt, is, is part of how we see God. And how we see God is part of how we see ourselves. And how your children see you, gentlemen, is a massive part about how they see their father, their heavenly father. So we need to be a model for him. Take a look at your last talking points question, and we're going to start wrapping this up. So I said back in verse 30 that he repent, or back in verse... Um, 18, that, that, that he repented he, when he says, I have sinned against you, etc. So here's the question. What does repentance look like? So what does repentance look like? What is repentance? Turning away from... It's, it, is, it is too... This is what, all we've ever sold it as is this turning away from the thing you know, you're, the, the rejection of God's will in whatever area you're in. Whether it's unto salvation or some of those other things I mentioned earlier. Judging others, you're like, ah, that's a sin. I repent of that sin. But that's not just what repentance is. What is it? Moving towards God. Right? That's, that's what this... What What happens? The son says, I I am sorry I have sinned. I'm going to go back to my father. Now, the beauty of biblical repentance is the father doesn't wait for us to get all the way to him. That's what I've been saying. The father, while the son, as the son is thinking this, our father sees it and empowers us to come back to him. Like, that's the mystery of the beauty of the gospel. Now, how how have you sold repentance short? in how you share it with others and in your own life. Just in the interest of time, I'll mention a few things that I wrote down this morning. Not believing that the gospel still works. Like, we've, like yeah, people aren't really repenting anymore. Right? Our job is just hunker down and, and ride this thing out. Not wanting to see those people restored. Whoever those people are to you. Could be an ethnic group. Could be a social class. Could be... Someone who's wronged you could be what, like, you fill in the blank. That's another way we sell repentance short. All of that flows from this in our own personal lives. So I wrote these things down because I am mostly guilty of these things. Most of my repentance is just saying to God, I'm sorry. And stopping there. It's just this. Oh, wait, that's a sin. But not moving towards him. Going, okay, so what do you want me to do instead, Lord? Right, I'm sorry. So here's what I end up doing. I'm sorry, Lord. Turning back to it. I'm sorry, Lord. Turning back to it. I'm sorry, Lord. It's when you move away from it by stepping towards him that we don't turn back to it nearly as fast, nearly as often, nearly as detrimentally. A couple more things I wrote down. Not recognizing his complete forgiveness, what I talked about earlier, like we, we, we think he sort of forgives us, but I'm still working out the rest of my salvation. Right? I still have to work for this little bit because his grace didn't cover it all. Right? I, I, another way I sell it short is, is frankly, I don't see my own need for his full forgiveness. 
Right? That's another huge aspect of it. Last one that I wrote down was no score. Like, I, like how do I sell repentance short? I keep score. I keep score between Carrie and I. I keep score with you people. I, keep, I do. I'm like, well, this is what I've done. This is what they've done. This is what I've done. This is what I've done. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm over on this end of the good meter. Right? I keep score, not just with God. I keep score with people. Except that that's leaving repentance like back there somewhere. Because repentance means I did nothing. Christ did all of it. So that leads us to our last point. So take a look at your last talking points question. And it's the last part of the story. So we've looked at where we've rejected his will. We've looked at um, how we need to be restored in his um, love, and then we need to look at why we need to rejoice in his grace. So we're going to pick it up with the second son. He says, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things were. So, so get this. He's out working. He hears a party happening at the house, and he goes to some people, and he says, hey, what's going on in there? Like, what, what's the deal? Because, frankly, he owns it all now. Remember, the father has given the other two-thirds to him. And he says, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son, the second son, was angry and refused to go in. Now look at this, guys. His father came out and entreated him. Guys, do you see? If the first son is the picture of the rebellious world, what is the second son a picture of? The religious church. And what is the father's response to both of them? He comes to us. Just like he came to the first son, he comes... Guys... The, the young man is bitter. The second son is over here and he's bitter and he's pouting and he's angry. And I get it. I do. Like I read this story and I go, yeah, but I get one. One, like, like the, the kid, his brother has blown half, a third of the estate is gone. Right? He's, he's defamed the family's name in their culture. It doesn't seem fair in any sense. Guys, do you remember the story? I want to be turned there. I think it's Matthew 16. But do you remember the story where... Um, where Jesus tells about the landowner, the vineyard owner, and he hires some people at the beginning of the day, and he says, I'll pay you a day's wage. And then in the 11th hour, like the last working hour of the day, he says, hey, why don't you come work for me too? And at the end, he's going to pay them all, and he pays them all the same. And the ones that have been working all day are like, uh, unfair. I've been, I've been busting my tail all day long. This guy has only been working for an hour and you gave us the same amount of money. And guys, the reason I take the time to share that story is because that's me. That's not fair. I read that parable every time and I'm like, but, but that, Jesus, you're just wrong. I, I, yeah, oh, I know, oh. Like we should all just go like, oh. Right, and then you should probably move away. <laughs> But, but honestly, that's, I mean, I'm just, I'm just revealing, and maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you people are all super holy, and you're like, yeah, I'm just glad I, for what I get. And you're like that all the time. I'm just telling you, that's, that's where I'm supposed to live. That's not where I'm living. Right? And, and so this, I get the, the bitterness and the anger of this young man, but so does his father. His father doesn't look at him and go, come on, boy, get your act together. Look at what, he's, look, look what the son says, verse 29. 
He says, but he, but he answers the father. The father goes out to him. He answers the father. He says, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you've never given me a young goat and I, that I might celebrate with my friends. He's saying, he's saying, I have been obedient. I have done all the religious activity you've ever wanted me to do. That would be in our vernacular. Lord, I, have, I, have, I come to church all the time. I'm here and I'm not out of town celebrating in the cool weather like everybody else. I'm doing all these things. right? And, and yet you aren't giving me enough. He is pointing his finger at the Father, just like I point my finger at God, and he's saying, you haven't blessed me. And look at, look at what the Father says. The Father could, like, destroy him, just like he could have destroyed the first son. But, well, first, let me show, look, at, look at verse 30. Like, he, this is how angry he is. But when this son of yours came, he can't even acknowledge him as his brother anymore. He's so ashamed of his younger brother, he won't even call him. But when my brother came back, he says, that son of yours, those people, when those people turn to you, you bless them. This is Jonah, right? I knew you were going to rescue those Ninevites. That's why I didn't want to go there. That's who we are. It says, um, and you, you, he, he devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him. He's like, how in the world can you possibly do that? But then he said this. Look at the father's response. He says, the father says to him, son, you are, not you have been, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Do you remember? He'd given, at the beginning of the story, he'd given the son two-thirds. He's like, don't you know that you own it all? The fattened calf was yours. All of it is yours. He has, I have given you abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. And you were so busy trying to, trying to get about your religious activity that you missed it. What was the younger, what was the older son's motivation? Well, apparently it wasn't to please the father. Apparently his only motivation really was, what can I get out of this? Guys, I'm going to finish this up and then invite the music team to come up. He says, and he said to them, or he said, he said, and he said to them, son, I've always been with you and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive, was lost and is now found. Guys, this is the point of the whole parable. The, the, the fact that the father comes to both of them. Guys, both of these young men, it, it, the, the point of the parable isn't the prodigal son. The point of the parable isn't even the self-righteous son. The point of the parable is how the father so loves them that whether you are the unrighteous, rebellious person like I was for so many years, or you are the self-righteous, religious person like I tend to be now, Jesus comes to both of them. That's, guys, get this. Now, now last point, and I promise this is my last point. Which one is more of an affront to Christ? The unrighteous rebel or the self-righteous religious? How do we know the self-righteous religious are, the most, are, more, are more of an affront to Christ? Yeah, it was the second message in the series. He shares a story, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He's like, the self-righteous religious dude and the unrighteous rebel... And he says, this one goes home justified. Why? Because I won't have you turn there, but in Romans 2, 
Remember, think back to our Roman series, our Roman series. He's like, what are you doing judging each other? What are you doing casting that judgment on other people? It was only God that made you righteous. And don't you know from that that it is the kindness of God that leads people to salvation? He's like, we are so busy. The, the reason the self-righteous religious person is more, not only more of an affront, but is in greater danger is because we don't think we need grace. We think we needed grace. And so, guys, the, the only people Jesus ever got mad at in the Gospels are the religious ones. That's it. He never got mad at the sinners for sinning. He got mad at the church folk for not loving people. When they should have known, why should they have known? Because Jeremiah 31.3 says that I have drawn you with loving kindness. The, the passage that Brian read for our calling passage, he says, don't fear. You are mine. Like, I made you. He's like, you should be out there doing my will for that reason alone. And we look around and we go, yeah, but those people don't deserve what we got. The only way that makes any sense in our lives is if somewhere inside us we think we're just better. That was the first, second son. That was the Pharisee in the, in the Pharisee and the tax collector story. As the music team comes up, I know some of you aren't really believing it, so I'm going to turn, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to close with this. Um, the music team's going to do a couple of songs, and then we're going to enjoy a meal together. We will have plenty of food like, so, so even if you didn't bring anything, stay, because I don't want to take home 30 hot dogs and, and 20 hamburgers. So stay and eat, fellowship, talk about what we're talking about. But guys, un turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't believe that, that the second son is the, because your pericope says that the story is about the titles of, of the parable says that the story is about the first son. You don't believe the second son is the bigger affront to God. We sit here today in danger of being, I mean, some of you are the rebellious person who's rejected God's will. I, I don't know who, but I get, I get that some of you don't know Christ. Most of us are sitting here today wrestling like the second son. We are the self-righteous, religious person and we need to remember that the, that, not, that the Father is abundantly willing to come out to us and go, hey, let's talk. Like, like give me that junk. So we have the white cards. While the music team is doing their song of response, I want to invite you to, to write whatever junk he's putting on your heart or has put on your heart today, put it on a card. If it's something you want to put on the cross, put it on the cross. If it's something you want to just ask him for help with, put it on the prayer wall. But take the time to do that. I'm going to read this and we're going to close with this. This is Jesus speaking to a church. So if you're, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I, I, don't believe, I don't believe that the people who are professing faith in Christ but not living for Christ, sitting in churches on Sunday, are a bigger affront to Jesus than those people out there that are screaming, right, even today, that are screaming just foul things, admittedly, and, and wanting horrendous things to happen in our nation, he's more offended by those of us who are sitting here going, yeah, but those people need to go to hell, and I'm just glad I'm here. How do I know? 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Then you guys can start. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Matthew 24, he says, because lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. This is what he's describing. Because the world is getting crazier. Those who profess faith in Christ are getting colder, not hotter. He says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to us. For you say, I am rich and I've prospered and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself of, of, of the shame and your nakedness that it may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love I reprove and, my dis, and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's saying live for me and my kingdom. Live for me and my kingdom, he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the door of the church. It's not the door of the unbeliever's heart who's protesting in downtown Phoenix today. The door he's standing in front of is that one. And he's saying, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, some of us are sitting here today and we are still that rebel. And some of us are just sitting here as the self-righteous one. I'm not here to say who's who. I'm not. I am here to say take this opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Salvation, nor ongoing repentance of the believer, which we all need, doesn't come because I guilt you into it. It doesn't come because you pray the prayer I pray. It doesn't come because it comes when the Holy Spirit does a work in your life and you respond to it. You have to respond. So what's it going to be? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for that truth. I thank you that you are a loving Father. I thank you that, that just like the Father in the parable, you have given us all of it. As was prayed during our prayer time by several people, there, there is nothing you hold back. You, you don't, you're not stingy with your grace. You lavish it upon your children. You say, I am always with you. You are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Lord, I pray that we would, as your people, would not live as paupers. 
that as C.S. Lewis said, that we wouldn't be satisfied with making mud pies on the seashore when we've been invited into the banquet hall. I do pray for those that, that, that are still, as I was for so long, in that unregenerate, rebellious, rejecting your will for their lives. Lord, I pray that not just for the people that are hearing my voice right now, but I do pray that for those people that are demonstrating today, for those people that, that frankly, my heart does not break enough for. I pray that today would be the day that your spirit would do a mighty work. If it takes tongues of fire landing on their heads to fill them as a temple of the Holy Spirit, I pray that that's what you would do. If what it takes is for one of us to walk across the room and go, hey, what comes to mind? when you think about God and then enter into whatever you would have for us in that moment. You would do that and use us for that as well. But most of all, Lord, I want to pray for, for us that you would open the spiritual eyes of our hearts, that we would see people the way you see them, that you would unplug our deaf ears, that we would hear hearts for what they're truly saying. That we, would, that we would see those moments where we can step in and go, okay, but, but here's where grace can cover that. Here's where grace has dealt with that. That you would use us, Lord, to show people, the people we're having lunch with in a few minutes and the people that we'll interact with throughout the week that there is a God in heaven who has made them in his image. There's a God in heaven who knows every single thing about them and still deeply, deeply loves them. And Lord, that, that, that our ability to do that would flow from just an unwavering belief that that's who we are to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.